0: Hello, friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. David Lay. He's a clinical psychologist and a board member of the Sexual Health Alliance, whose research focuses on issues relating to sexuality, pornography, and mental health. Your partner being intimate with another guy should evolutionarily be one of the biggest fears in a man's life. Actually, encouraging this behavior seems almost unthinkable, and yet, cooking is becoming a much more common pursuit and one of the most popular categories of online porn. Expect to learn the stats around how common cookholding actually is, whether cookholding could cover up a husband's desire to be with another man, how often this goes wrong and destroys a relationship, whether sex addiction is an actual thing, some surprising research around porn addiction, how religiosity predicts dysfunction with porn, and much more. This is an area of research which... Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, is not massively delved into. So Dr. David Lay gets to own almost an entire category here as being one of the number one pro-porn and cooking researchers on the planet. Uh, But it is very interesting. And uh, despite me not being able to perhaps put myself into the mindset of this, uh, the explanation at least begins to illuminate uh, what might be going on at the moment. This is very, very interesting. Enjoy. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite demand. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and they will give you a new one for free. Get a 15% discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and using the code MW15 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash letter C, letter D, wisdom, and MW15 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by... Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. David Lay. What about cook holding? Why did you get into
1: that? <laughs> why did well uh, to be clear why did i get into writing and reading and researching about it and tre- working with people that, that engage in it um uh back in like 2007 um i was clinically depressed um i in my day job so to speak i run a, a large you know community mental health center agency uh traditional behavioral health services lots of medicaid hr budget all those kinds of issues um and it was really challenging. I was really struggling. So um, I I started collecting data for a study about uh, consensual non-monogamy. At the time, very little had been published about polyamory, etc. And uh, I never published the study. It was a, it was a crappy little study, probably not very good anyway, but as I was doing it, I ran into these two couples who lived the cuckold or hot wife lifestyle where the wife was uh, enthusiastically, um, you know, sexual with people outside the relationship with men outside the relationship and the, and the husband was monogamous. And my initial impression and reaction was honestly to say, wow, that, that's crazy. that, that can't work. Um, but what was really remarkable was that uh, both of these couples had been married for decades. They had incredibly successful careers, uh, very healthy, you know, kids, families, um, incredible communication skills. By every measure that we would, as a therapist, you know, apply, these were very healthy people. And so then I, I kind of questioned myself. I was like, well, why did I assume that, that they're unhealthy? And, and at that point, you know, I'd been working around sexuality issues for a while, but, but I realized that without noticing it, I was applying moral biases around female sexuality, around promiscuity around monogamy. And those biases had snuck into my clinical thinking. And so I, uh, went to the literature, and there was nothing published about this. There was there was one study in the '90s by an Israeli psychologist who analyzed you know letters to Penthouse about wife sharing, and um, there was nothing else, nothing else published about this. And then, as I started you know talking to people, I started hearing how common this was and so i dove into the literature um evolutionary psychology uh psychology of monogamy biology of of sexuality female sexual arousal um uh, and i also interviewed people um around the world who were living uh this this lifestyle and and at the end of the day i found that you know there were actually lots of people who clinicians like me who Assumed it was unhealthy because they'd never been taught how diverse sexuality is. Um, And uh, the fascinating thing is, I mean, you know, when I wrote the book, um, nobody was really talking about cuckolding. But over the past few years, it's really exploded. I mean, we've got you know the Jerry Falwell Jr. scandal, um, multiple folks around uh, the Trump administration actually involved in cuckolding, and um, it's super popular in pornography now. Uh, and we didn't see any of that coming um and and my book uh, Insatiable Wives on the topic um re- was re-released as an audiobook last year and it's just like flying off the shelves on Audible because people love to go on these road trips with their wife and pop that in and then say hey what do you think
0: there is a very large cohort of men that are listening right now who are thinking fuck no how uh, is a man able to get past his inherent uh, concern around his wife going off with another man? We are evolutionary programmed for male parental uncertainty to be, to be something that we are incredibly fear, uh, scared of, right? Mm-hmm. How is this something, not only that a non-insignificant group of people, men, can deal with, but can actually take pleasure from?
1: It's a really interesting question, Chris, and it's it's one that you know I'm starting to think we need to research because you're right. There there are many men that when they the fear of infidelity by their female partner triggers rage and even you know murderous behaviors. Uh, fear of infidelity is really common in in spousal homicide but then there are these other men that the idea of their wife being unfaithful turns them on what's the difference between these guys right now we don't know um i i will speculate that uh some of it is about openness to experience um uh, it, there may be some some kink in this um uh, many of the the men who explore cuckolding Um, are interested in submission uh, from a a bondage and discipline kind of standpoint, but not all. Um, There is What's really interesting, though, is that the men who grow up in highly uh, rigid, stereotyped, masculinized kind of uh, environments are actually more likely to be turned on by the idea of cuckolding. Because it's an escape from the constrictive rigidity of in order to be a man, you know, you must be so manly that your wife would never even want another man. And there are lots of guys that, you know, find that pressure kind of a burden and they they want to escape from it or at least a vacation from it. And cuckolding... And the opportunity to kind of sit back and sort of watch um, is is less pressure for these guys. Now, interestingly, um, you know, cuckolding and fantasies of cuckolding appear to be more common in Republicans than Democrats. They uh, appear to be more prevalent in uh, highly macho kind of societies, Brazil, Russia. what's
0: What's the data that you're pulling that sort of stuff from?
1: um uh, a couple of different sources one uh justin lay miller is a psychologist um a co-author with me on some research around great crickling.
0: twitter follow everyone should follow yeah, Justin.
1: absolutely and he's he's got data on the prevalence of sexual fantasies um related to politics and and political stances um and is that then self-report uh fourth yeah, self report 4,000. I mean, how do you, uh, h- how would it be otherwise? We, I mean, I'm not sure how we would measure people's I, sexual fantasies. I don't know. Some like, from.
0: some implicit bias bullshit on a computer <laughs> where you select selecting. Oh, joy. Yeah. You know okay. I mean? Great. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. But okay. Yeah. Cool. So you've asked a non insignificant sample of people about their sexual mm-hmm. fantasies. And in that, cook holding appears to show up. How much? How much does it show up?
1: Um, you know, in Justin's research, I want to say he found that uh, Oh, there's a siren going by. Sorry, that's fine. Um, In Justin's research, I want to say he found about 50 to 55% of men were reported that they had had at least one fantasy of watching their female partner with another man. Around 45% of women reported uh, that they were interested in being watched with another man
0: by their partner. Dude, that is unbelievable like i i don't deny that justin has got the 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 data to back this up but i just think how is there more than 50 percent of men not only that but there's 10 percent more men that want to see their wife get fucked by another man or at least have fantasized about Mm -hmm. it once and the difference between maybe thinking about it right and going through with it is literally a universe apart, right? You know, there's a lot of things that we think about doing that we don't.
1: Right. And, you know, sexual fantasies are cognitive exploration. Um, They oftentimes are a way we kind of work through things. Um, You know, Dan Savage, um, also a co-author with me on some research around cuckolding, um, he, uh, he argued that the cuckold fantasy is an eroticization of fear. That because men are afraid of their wife cheating on them, that in order to take away the sting of that fear, they eroticize it and turn it into something that is that they then sexually fantasize about or are sexually aroused by. I think it's an interesting idea, but we don't see very many people, you know, eroticizing spiders um, as a way to deal with their fear of spiders. So I don't know that the eroticism of fear um, strategy is is really a good explanation. I think that there's a lot of explanations. Now, I did, when I wrote the book, um, most of the men that were into cuckolding uh, were men that already had kids. And so, you know, you mentioned parental uncertainty a minute ago. And, you know, the, it, it, it's interesting to recognize that the, the term cuckolding is related to the cuckoo bird that lays an, an egg in the nest of other species. And then that egg hatches sooner. And then the cuckoo chick, uh, you know, consumes the food and the resources of the other species and even will like push the other eggs out of the nest. An early naturalist looked at that and said, "Well, that's what happens if a guy's wife cheats on him. Um, that now the, the 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 man is at risk of investing resources in a child not genetically related to him." So they called it cuckolding. Um, at the when I wrote the book um, in 2009, uh, most of the men that were into it already had kids. And I didn't see very many young men that were into this fantasy. And interestingly, just in 10 years, we've seen a big shift. Um, And I'm seeing more young men that don't have kids that are interested in uh, cuckold porn and cuckold fantasy and
0: even cuckold behavior. So that, to me, the first instance that you had would make a lot of sense Mm -hmm. because you would think, If male parental uncertainty is no longer a concern, these men will be insulated at least in part from this fear. I mean, again, for me, Mm -hmm. it it is still, dude, it is absolutely blowing my mind that there is not more than like a a tiny, tiny handful of guys that can do this. There's a famous YouTuber who um, put a video up last year, uh, tried swinging, uh, went to a, a sex party of some kind, and he tells this relatively in-depth story about watching his girlfriend that he loved next to him with some other guy. And he said that he just had to immediately leave. It had traumatized him so much to observe the girl that he was in love with Mm -hmm. having sex with another man. And it's kind of become a bit of a meme on the internet. But (laughs) I, you know, some of my friends are incredibly open with regards to their sex lives. I don't think that they're particularly repressed, but I know that if that was a situation that occurred, one of two things would happen they would leave and get out and be traumatized or they would smash the guy to bits. Like those are the only two options that they have. And I think I wonder whether, I wonder what is occurring to downregulate that response. Maybe it is this, um, like you say, this eroticization of fear. I can see that as a thing. And I think that, uh, the difference between the spiders and the, um, cuckold, fear generation is that that is already a, within the domain of sex, right? Spiders mm-hmm. aren't within the domain of sex, but watching somebody else have sex with your partner is. Uh, and also the taboo transgression thing, you know, it's the high-powered boss mm-hmm. bitch CEO woman who loves to be tied up on an evening time by her hot playboy because there is something about the polarity that creates that, that attraction, right? That's what is exciting about it. It's letting go of whatever you are, the role that you have to play out there. I think, for instance, one of the side effects that you're going to have of BLM over the last three years is probably an increase in race play in the bedroom. As you make uh, race a more taboo subject in public, I think in private, you're absolutely going to see this go up. All of that rolled together, all all of the things, I just think it is such a fundamental fear that men have for this to occur, and it, it blows my mind that guys can get past it
1: and that fundamental fear though comes comes with a lot of energy, and that that's one of the things that that I see in these couples is that they take that fear and that jealousy. <clears throat> And they translate it, uh, transmute it even into this kind of turbocharged sexual excitement. I mean, we, a guy is, it, it, interestingly, when a guy believes his female mate may, may have been unfaithful, he is more likely to um, have more vigorous sex with her, thrust more deeply and harder, and more likely to get aroused and, 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 and want to, have an, want to have sex again, right? Now, the, some of this is the sperm competition theory that eh, uh, some research around it is not replicated, but I still think that that, that evolutionary drive to compete um, is part of what uh, folks are using here and kind of co-opting it in
0: this uh, strategy to increase their excitement. Have you seen any evidence suggesting that this could be some repurposed, repressed homosexuality Mm. that men could want to perhaps be involved with another Mm -hmm. man, but he's currently got a wife and the closest he can get to a man is letting her have sex with another man. And if you were to do some eye tracking during that event, you might find that his eyes are on him more than her
1: right um, absolutely I mean first let me let me say you know as with any sexual behavior um, this is complex there are lots of different factors and reasons for each individual person that drive them into this um, or or make it arousing for them but you're absolutely right for a significant portion of these guys there was some um, suppressed bisexuality remember that most of these guys are coming from more conservative uh, political or social backgrounds where being bisexual or having same-sex interests It isn't acceptable. But, you know, you can have sex with your wife, with another man through the vehicle of your wife's body, um, interacting with um, with his penis sexually or interacting with his semen by going down on her afterwards. Um, You know, a friend of mine on YouTube. Uh, runs the the Fuck Yeah Friendly Fire um, web uh, uh, account where he shares porn of guys, you know, interacting with each other sexually as they are having sex with a woman. And there's a lot of, you know, uh, bisexual um, kind of interest in there that is coming out in these soft bisexual behaviors.
0: What was the proportion of men that had some sort of bisexual inclination can you remember (sighs) ah you know we didn't um
1: i didn't collect numbers on that with these with the research that i did for my book it was it was much more qualitative kind of research um i I would roughly guesstimate that bisexuality is probably 30 or 40% of guys that are into into cuckolding. Um, now, Joe Court is a psychologist and a friend of mine, and he he points out that there are guys who have sex with other guys when they're not motivated from a bisexual kind of place. And I I've questioned that, but Joe has a good example of a guy who, you know, is not bisexual and not attracted to other men but he's very into being submissive and so if his wife or a dominatrix forces him to have sex with another man even though he's not into it for the other man he's into it because that is the ultimate level of submission and so it is erotically arousing (laughs) not because of this not because of the guy but because of the submission
0: that is one hell of a level of submission Mm -hmm. i'm Wow, dude, some of the um, like corners of the internet with kinks. I didn't think that I was particularly vanilla sexually, but dear God, uh, this this makes me think. This makes me think I don't. Okay, so.
1: Well, you know, that and that, remember where I started that because most therapists, and most people don't know this, 90% of therapists and psychologists and mental health clinicians in the United States have almost no training in sexuality. So we've always assumed that vanilla is the norm.
0: But uh It's not that vanilla. Yeah. It's well not, it's not it's not that I'm not I'm not that vanilla, right? <laughs> Re- I'm relatively vanilla. But we, what we know now,
1: actually, research from, from Quebec, um, uh, in Canada, um, has found that around 50% of a normative population, non-clinical population, have interest in things like exhibitionism, sadism, masochism, um, voyeurism, um, things that we used to think were disorders. And about 30% of people have engaged in those behaviors. And so what we're finding now is that the norm is actually much more diverse than we ever believed. But people kept their mouth shut because
0: they didn't want to be shamed for it. The sexual Overton window perhaps is a little bit wider than we might have first realized. Okay. Mm -hmm. Hot wifing. What's hot wifing?
1: Um, hot hotwifing is this uh, kind of offshoot of cuckolding. Um, cuckolding typically involves a you know more of a submissive stance by the male where he is you know taking a a, a submissive uh, role to to his wife and her uh, the men that she may be with. A hot wife it looks a little bit more like swinging where the husband is not in. A uh, submissive role, but is sharing his wife with other men. Um, now we're also now hearing about something called stag vixen and. That is roughly looking like, you know, hot wife kind of thing. But the man is really taking a a stance with that label and saying, I'm not a cuck. I'm not being humiliated. I'm not weak. I'm strong by sharing my wife with other men. And some of this relates to the, you know, the politics over the past few years where Republicans and people on Fox News and everything else were calling each other cuck if they appeared weak at all. And so I think that guys then that were interested in sharing their wives didn't want people to take that as a as a uh, coming from a
0: place of weakness. Does cook holding ever go wrong and destroy a relationship?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've seen, um, I've seen couples where, uh, the husband was, was really obsessive and, um, the, the focus or fantasy of, of cuckolding, um, became so obsessive and dominant in his relate, in his sexuality that the wife, um, reacted negatively and, and, and in some cases even divorced. I've seen some cuckold couples where, uh, the wife falls in love with the other guy and leaves. Um, that's the fear. Um, I think that as with any non-monogamous uh, relationship, it can be done right and it can be done poorly. Typically the relationships that I see fail um, for cuckolding fail for other reasons and the cuckold, uh, you know, fantasy or behavior kind of just exposed some of those cracks in the relationship. And what we found in research, uh, with gay cuckold couples was that in general, um, if it was a healthy couple and um, that exploring cuckolding
0: was a healthy, uh, aspect to the relationship. What is different about gay or lesbian. Is there such a thing as female cuckolding? What's the reverse? Do women have fantasies about watching their husband have sex with another wife?
1: Some it's called cut queening, Um, and the, it's spell it's spelled kind of funny. Um, uh, instead of Q U E E, it's spelled Q U E A for some reason. I'm not entirely sure. Um, okay. It's it's much 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 less common um, than the fantasy of cuckolding. But yeah, there are um, wives who get aroused at the idea of their their husband with other with other women, um, and you know, I is that. It, one of the things that that we see happen in a lot of non-monogamous relationships and in cuckolding especially and 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 cut queening, I guess, is that the more attractive your partner is to other people, the more attractive they become to you, right? Because and, and yeah, th- there's a lot of you know, talk online about, you know, women being interested in men that are attracted, attractive to other women, right? Um, Is that some of it? Maybe Um, I, I, I called it the queen bee or the, or the, or or the king bee kind of uh, phenomenon in my book where, you know, having, having a partner that is attractive to other partners and that you can share with them, but then you get to take them home um, feels kind of rewarding and exciting and fulfilling.
0: What I'm thinking about is how, wild and interesting it is that, on average, females show more bisexuality than males. There's more Mm -hmm. gay men, but there's more bisexual women in the world. And, ancestrally, polygyny was more common than... Mm -hmm. What's the one one where it's one woman... Polyandry. Polyandry, Polyandry, thank you. Um, So we have, you know, at least some ancestral... uh, predisposition to this one man many women we also have a increased preference amongst a non-insignificant cohort of women for women compared with men for men at least when you've got uh, the bisexual relationship and yet you're saying that f- queen being whatever it was called uh female queening or whatever is significantly rarer than the thing which seems to be statistically in terms of sexual preference less likely and ancestrally in terms of predisposition less programmed that's so interesting
1: it it is all super interesting and um we don't know what it looks like um in in societies where there is greater egalitarian sexual economics. In the polygynous history, reproduction and mating was oftentimes women's only kind of economic value or resource that they, that they controlled. Um, so, you know I, know, I know, you know, Jordan Peterson got, got in trouble by talking about you know, the that we should have you know, socially enforced, enforced monogamy. monogamy yeah. Right.
0: He didn't use the word socially which was the problem, that was why he right. got in trouble. Right, yeah.
1: and you know, and, and he's got a point because historically you know, polygynous societies had higher rates of violent crime because you had powerful men that had all the hot chicks and you had lots of young men who couldn't date or mate or reproduce and And so they had nothing better to do than start trouble. Um, But again, in that that historical society, women didn't have economic independence like we have now. What's really interesting is that as men's economic uh, index goes up, infidelity actually tends to go down. But as women's economic... Index goes up, infidelity goes up because female women,
0: infidelity or male infidelity.
1: Female infidelity. So women who are economically independent are more likely to engage in infidelity because they're not going to lose everything. They're not going to. They're not going to be destitute, uh, living in a shelter. Would the it not also be the
0: great? Would it not also be the case that women who are more economically independent are struggling to find a mate hypergamously that's above and across from them, which means that it is more likely they're going to have to mate down. William Costello's got some new data around this that suggests that hypergamy is actually on the decline a tiny little bit. However, it's also going down in line with female-only infidelity, which is going up in line with rates Mm -hmm. of domestic violence. So all of this is sort of uh, cascading together.
1: And, and and we we see, uh, you know, men who are married to a woman who makes more than him are more likely to engage in infidelity um, with that, uh, whether that's insecurity. Now, infidelity oftentimes is motivated to kind of fill some insecurity. Um, am I still attractive to other people? Um, do I have options? Um, can I explore aspects of myself with other people that I don't get to explore with my primary partner? Um, and so again, you know, the, that, that's, that, that's the one concern I have about a lot of evolutionary arguments. And, and Costello is brilliant. He's a good friend of mine. and I love his research, but um, evolutionary arguments can be really great. Just so stories that, um, explain really complicated behavior. And as a psychologist, as a clinical psychologist, I want to live in the complicated land. I want to, I want to, I want I want to deal with and recognize all of the multiple things that are influencing these issues and not reduce it to, to single factors.
0: Yeah. I understand that. I think, um, what's happening in the mating market at the moment with this sort of ever increasing group of educated and employed women. And it, it is, it's pretty fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. And also terrifying at the same time. One other thing that I had in my mind with regards to cook holding generally and a practice of non-monogamy more broadly. And I've got a ton of friends. I'm here in Austin, which is like the non-monogamy capital <laughs> of America. Right. Yeah. Um, but with the hero of San Francisco, uh, there is an element of, a fear that I have around a kind of Cheston's fence analogy going on here, that there are things which can be enjoyable, pleasurable, and even good for the individual, but which can be damaging uh, when you smear that across an entire society. You know, mm-hmm. for instance, monogamy is pretty good for societal stability. You know, if you have it's a sexual redistribution strategy, if you do have that polygynous mm-hmm. society, You are looking at young male syndrome. You are looking at higher rates of loneliness, of reduced health span, of reduced birth rate, all the way down. Um, I'm not saying that we need to start enforcing. Like you can't do cookholding in the comfort of your own home. Like you can do whatever you want. Um, But I do think that it's an interesting, whatever ethical or philosophical question to ask. You know, we put warnings on uh, cigarettes. We put warnings on foods that aren't particularly healthy for us. I don't know. I wonder if there is a, an equivalent uh, type of relationship set up that could be enjoyable to an individual but could be uh, corrosive to them perhaps in the longer term. It could be corrosive to them. But we don't allow young people, we shouldn't allow young people to watch porn, like for a similar sort of reason, that exposing people to uh, sexualized content at a young age isn't necessarily good for them. It's just a, a thought that I had in my mind.
1: Mm-hmm. I I think the the issue is that one relationship type doesn't work for everybody. And um, a lot of the problem here has come from a, a historical approach that monogamy is the only right way to do it. And... The more taboo you put around, you know, uh, uh, violating monogamy, the more exciting it's going to be for some people. Um, also, the more social structures require that, or at least the the appearance of it. I mean, I, you know, uh, as, as Dan Savage, you know, calls it monogamish, turns out to be much, much more common than we've ever taught, than we've ever recognized. And I, again, I think the Part of the issue is that when we when we use the term monogamy, we're, we're meaning sexual fidelity, but that's not actually what monogamy means. Monogamy means life partner. Means What's sexual fidelity? So uh, not being not having sex with other with other partners. Um, but you can be monogamous to the definition of monogamy and still have sex with other partners. A lot of the birds, for instance, swans and geese that people have said, Oh, they're so romantic. They they mate for life. Well, yeah, they partner for life, but they still have sex with other, with other animals in the
0: species. So and ni- 95% of birds don't have penises. Either, <laughs> I think so. I'm not sure how much we can draw across. That's across fair.
1: Fingers. Now, uh, you know, I, uh, a comment that you made, though, just a moment ago is and I think it relates, you know, should should kids, you know, be allowed to watch porn or have access to porn? I think it's a very complicated and and, and challenging question. What what some research has found, though, is that the more parents try to prevent kids from seeing porn, the more the kids want to see it, the more the kids work to seek it out. Um, what we find is that the, the kids that are younger and seeing porn or report seeing porn at younger ages tend to be higher sensation seeking kids already. They are kids that were already interested in sex. And the reason they saw porn was typically because they were seeking it out at younger ages. So the, you know, the whole social dialogue right now about you know, um, uh, the whether pornography is damaging for kids or not, not all kids are the same. And the other thing that we find is that the kids who are harmed by seeing porn, who learn unhealthy lessons, right? They learn that to have anal sex, you don't need lube or prep. They, they learn that, you know, to, to give a girl an orgasm, you just jump on and pump away. These are unhealthy lessons. Kids that learn those unhealthy lessons tend to be kids who think pornography is realistic sex. So kids that think pornography is realistic sex tend to be kids that have poor levels of sex education or have grown up in societies or cultures or communities where you don't talk about sex. The way we can protect kids from any harms from pornography is through giving them good sex education. Emily Rothman is in Boston. She's a psychologist and colleague, brilliant. And she's got really remarkable research on an evidence-based strategy called porn literacy, teaching young people, adolescents, what porn is and isn't, what they should or shouldn't learn from it. And that um, remarkably has very, very strong success for preventing kids from learning unhealthy lessons from, from pornography.
0: I think definitely given the increased prevalence and ease of access that anybody that's got a smartphone and, you know, Mm -hmm. nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds now are getting iPhones for Christmas. So, I don't know, you put the parental block on and you've got some smart kid at 12 years Mm -hmm. old that knows their phone better than their parents. Like, what are you going to do? Um, So, in that regard, I I, I suppose it's an an unwinnable war. Uh, I do think that porn literacy would make a lot of sense. I do... There is something really brutal, unfortunate about the way that the human mind works, which has been... So you brought up a bunch of times today. As you try to wall off Mm -hmm. a taboo, the typical response from at least a non-insignificant cohort of people is to try and seek that out more, right? I, I remember I used this story a few years ago where... Um, if you've ever been stood with somebody next to the edge of a cliff or whatever, Mm -hmm. and you just think in your mind, like, I wonder what would happen if I push them over. And then you can't stop thinking about that thought because you think, oh, my God, that's so terrible. I mustn't think about it. I mustn't think about it. Well, I'm thinking about how I mustn't think about it, so I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. it. And you continue to refer yourself from the thought you mustn't have. Uh, That being said, as far as I'm concerned, exposing anybody that legally can't have sex to videos of people having sex seems to cross a line as far as I can see, unless it is like very structured, therapeutically done in a an evidence based way with the blah blah blah. I, I don't I I struggle to see how we would be able to justify exposing kids to videos and images of stuff that they that would be illegal for them to enact. Yeah. Like,
1: yeah, this famous sex educator years ago though, he said what if we taught kids how to swim the same way we teach them about sex? We tell them, well, you can't do it until you're a certain age. Um, we can't expose you to information about it. Um, and you can hear us in the room having a lot of fun, but you don't get to know what's actually going on until you're 18. And then we throw open the doors and you can jump in the pool. How many kids would drown? I think that and and I'm not advocating that kids see porn by no means it's for adults but I think that there's a very significant kind of moral panic around this that is significantly exaggerated um, Alexander Stulhofer is a, a Croatian researcher who's looked at, for instance, you know, the relationship between, uh, you know, consuming violent pornography and uh, sexual engaging in sexual violence, specifically in adolescent males. And what he found was really interesting. He found that young men who watched less pornography were at greater risk of engaging in sexual violence and that the, the young men who were interested in watching sexually violent pornography actually stopped watching sexually violent pornography as time went on in this longitudinal study that you know the uh Access to pornography correlates with a very significant decrease in sexual violence in our society and in every society where this has been studied. There's a lot of fear about pornography that is uh, just like me when I, was, when I was reacting to those early couples that I saw that is based on morality and c- these intrinsic kind of intuitive fears. But the data typically doesn't hold up.
0: What are some of the other biggest myths that people hold around porn?
1: Well, one of the ones that that is, you know, all over the Internet right now is, you know, porn induced erectile dysfunction, that watching too much porn causes erectile dysfunction. And so you've got these guys saying, well, porn broke my dick and, and I can get hard when I'm watching porn, but I can't get hard when I'm having sex with my trying to have sex with my female partner. It must be because of pornography. And there's absolutely no scientific evidence to support this. And there's lots and lots of evidence showing that, you know, Watching porn is always going along with a certain behavior, right? Jerking off. And we we talk about porn, but we don't talk about masturbation. So whenever we talk about porn, we have to talk about masturbation. Now, masturbation and sex are two different things. What we know is that... uh Roughly half of men under age 45, around 40% of men, um, will report at least one episode of erectile dysfunction. And the number one predictor of that is anxiety. Anxiety, obesity, drugs and alcohol, and limited sexual experience. Um, now, Watching porn and masturbating is different from having sex. When I watch porn and masturbate, I don't have to buy the Internet dinner. I don't have to worry about finding its clearest. To turn it on, I just have to push the button. Um, but when I'm with a partner, I need to be mindful. I need to restrain my own sexual desires or behaviors and be sensitive to theirs. And if you are an anxious person with limited sexual experience, that can be challenging. Research just last year uh, showed that in men that have any sexual dysfunction, delayed ejaculation, premature ejaculation, erectile dysfunction, the men are about 50% more likely to experience symptoms of that dysfunction during partnered sex and not during masturbation. Because again, during masturbation, you can sit back and relax. So how do we how do we address that? By trying to reduce the anxiety, by trying to help guys learn to not be so penis-focused in their sex, to learn in, um, other behaviors, expand the definition of sex. But for these insecure guys who are on these chat rooms and nofap rooms and every other darn thing where they're being told, if your penis doesn't work every time, then it's broken and you're less of a man. It creates this anxiety shame spiral that increases iatrogenically the occurrence of that anxiety.
0: Iatrogenically.
1: Iatrogenic is when a intervention that is supposed to help something actually um, uh, creates more harm. So, if you go in the hospital for uh, appendicitis and you get your appendix taken out, but then you get a staph infection, that's iatrogenic, where the healing actually caused another problem. So, the intervention of trying to prevent erectile dysfunction appears to actually be increasing it. And now, there's one group that we, do, one group of men that we do see struggle with erectile function when they are um, with a partner, uh, but not when they're watching porn, but it's driven by shame. Guys who are ashamed of watching pornography are more likely to have difficulties performing um, or getting erect when they're with their partner because they're ashamed of their private sexual behavior. A lot of this is, is the shame not the porn, typically watching porn, and again, accompanied by masturbation, is an indicator of libido guys who watch more porn have more sex this is data that comes up consistently because watching porn and masturbating to it is an indicator of your overall desire for sex and those guys overall are more likely to pursue sex or value it um and and so enact it in
0: their life if shame causes erectile dysfunction and stopping porn stops the shame then surely, proximally, stopping porn stops erectile dysfunction.
1: Not so much because um, the there's this interesting phenomenon of. Uh, it's called a flattening where um, the more conservative your attitudes are about, about sex and porn, the more you start to view any kind of uh, sexual stimuli, whether it's Frederick's or Hollywood catalog – I don't know if they make that anymore um, – uh, as as porn. And we see this huge number of religious men who identify as addicted to porn but report that they haven't watched porn in the past month. In fact, there's a significant number of religious men who identify as addicted to pornography but have never watched porn. So it's the porn starts to become this stand in for sexual desires or thoughts that they feel like they're not supposed to have. The number one predictor of identifying as a porn addict is not how much porn you watch, but whether you were raised religious. Um, so when when somebody comes to me and says they, they're addicted to pornography or they're addicted to sex, what that tells me as a therapist is that. They have thoughts and feelings and desires about sex that they wish they didn't have. As a therapist, I now want to try and understand why do you think you shouldn't have those thoughts? And what what do you think those thoughts mean about you as a person? Can we explore that? The the research on effective treatments for people that struggle with these sexual behaviors or desires – is not actually getting them to stop the sexual behavior, but instead engaging in cognitive behavioral therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy, which are strategies that try to change the function of the behavior and try to address the meaning and the cognitions that we put to the behavior.
0: You could imagine for a, a large group of probably secular, probably mostly non-religious guys who are in no nofap, subreddits and whatnot, that the choice between I have shame around porn use and masturbation that makes me feel like I shouldn't do it and it has potentially caused me to perform more poorly with a partner or make me feel like less of a man, I can go through ACT or CBT or I can stop watching porn and stop masturbating. For many of them, that is a much simpler, easier-to-control more immediate return, so I can see. I mean, I the, the evidence with regards to no fap. I don't know. I mean, there's some of it that's a little bit overblown that you're going to levitate and that women can smell your <laughs> pheromones and stuff like that. That does that. That did always seem a little bit far out to me. But I can also see how the level of shame that you have or the level of self-judgment that you have around anything can manifest in as real of a way as you want due to an expectation effect, right? You know, the placebo effect, if we could bottle Mm -hmm. it, it, would be the strongest effect in pharmacology. And there's an equivalent in psychology as well with the expectation effect. If you are expecting to feel bad because of doing a thing and you stop doing the thing, the alleviation of feeling bad by no longer doing it is going to not be insignificant.
1: Yeah, again, though, um, what is the definition of the behavior? And so a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the, the folks, you know, online that, that want to stop masturbating. They unfortunately will now frame as a relapse um, any sexual thoughts, any, any sexual fantasies, um, a wet dream that, that biologically is going to happen if you stop having um, regular emissions. Uh, your body is going to get rid of old sperm by having a, by having a nocturnal emission, wet dream. The, 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 the abstinence-only goal – increases distress depression and suicidality um unfortunately because it
0: that shows up in the data
1: yeah yeah in study after study and people that participate more and more and more in these abstinence only forums um are sh- are they're showing higher levels of anxiety higher levels of depression um and and more and more thoughts of suicide it's unfortunate because the goal, the abstinence goal, it's not necessarily a healthy one, right? Um, how, many, how, many, how many ejaculations or orgasms should a man have every month to have the most healthy prostate, right? Twenty-two. A man should have urologically recommended twenty-two orgasms a month for the for the healthiest prostate. Now, my prostate effectively at this point is immortal. Um, when I die, my prostate will probably live on for another hundred or two hundred years. There's no point at which sex stops being healthy. Um, Uh, people who have more sex live longer. Now, we don't know if that's because healthier people have more sex or because having sex makes you healthier. It's probably both. But there's no point on that curve where it all of a sudden goes down, where, okay, that's too much sex. Sex appears to be a very healthy human behavior. And masturbating appears to increase Sexual desire increase testosterone levels, increase sexual performance. Pe- men and women who masturbate more tend to have more sex and tend to enjoy sex more. Again, there's a chicken and egg kind of phenomenon. They're ha- they're masturbating more because they like sex because it's it, it, it's a valuable experience to them. They're more motivated toward, towards it. But sex is also a muscle. The more sex you have, the more you want to have sex. The less sex you have the less sex you want to have. And so there, um, uh, the idea that, you know, if I, if I stop masturbating, that then I'll be a better lover in, in, in sexual medicine is simply not true.
0: Have you looked at how porn use affects single people's drive to find a mate?
1: Um, yeah, actually. Um, well, I mean, I have not. Um, uh, but a guy named uh, Sam Perry... As a researcher in Oklahoma, and he's looked at this and um a really interesting paper dropped i think just last year um where uh, basically you know looked at the question of um because porn is a cheap and easy sexual outlet, um, uh, does it, uh, you know, is, is it like fast food? So the guys um, will stop wanting the steak dinner. They'll stop pursuing marriage and found no evidence to support it that um, again watching porn is an expression of lib- of libido and desire for sex and uh people who watch porn and masturbate want more sex and sex is different than masturbation because in sex with a partner, we have touch and we have another person there and we can smell them and um, all of these things that all of these stimuli that are not present in masturbating to pornography. So masturbating to pornography is not something that blocks interest or takes the place of uh, sex. Now, I will give a caveat in that I do see... People um, oftentimes, where a man, for instance, is choosing to watch pornography and masturbate rather than having sex with his wife. And there's this kind of idea then that, you know, the porn and masturbation has become, has taken the place of sex with his wife. But what I consistently find in those cases is a couple of things. One is that the couple stopped having sex as frequently. And so the guy is watching porn and masturbating to compensate um, for the decrease sex frequency. But two, the wife is um, not interested in the same kind of sex that the husband is interested in. Oftentimes the wife is more shaming of sex um, and views masturbation as uh, shameful or or immoral. And so more and more and more, the guy is now faced with, well, it's not that I don't want to have sex, but I'm not sure I want to have sex with you. Because of conflict in the relationship, or because of sexual mismatch, um, again, Sam Perry found that um, early. He is his early research in seventeen. He found that watching porn predicted later divorce. He went now. He's a great researcher, and he went back to that research later on um, at suggestions of folks like me who were saying, you know, there's there's more to the story, and found that if you separate out the the variants of masturbation in those couples, that actually porn watching had a neutral to slightly positive uh, predictive uh, relationship with the marriage. But masturbation frequency predicted later divorce now it's not that masturbation um, is causing divorce but masturbation and increases in masturbation frequency reflect a mismatch of sexual desire within the relationship and it's that mismatch that is causing the later divorce and relationship problems typically you know and and this is this is my mantra is that you know Porn related problems, sex related problems overwhelmingly are symptomatic of other issues. And unfortunately, when we focus on the porn or the sex, I call it the sexy, shiny object syndrome. We get distracted by the sex. We blame the sex or the porn for everything. Yeah. I, I see, I see many men who come in there and they're struggling with porn and they're. Watching porn too much and they identify as porn addicts. Well, these are guys with OCD or really significant anxiety problems that they're not treating Watching porn and masturbating is a great way to turn off your anxiety for a little while But they need other ways to turn off that anxiety um, And they need help dealing with the anxiety But they get distracted and people around them get distracted by blaming the porn mm
0: what what would you say to somebody that's listening to this and says i don't like my relationship with porn i don't like my relationship with masturbation um what would you tell them um so i see a lot of those guys and i and i and i talk about
1: this a lot in my in my third book it's called ethical porn for dicks a man's guide to responsible viewing pleasure and um First, I think that's actually a really good question to ask yourself. Unfortunately, many people don't think about their sexuality when they're not turned on. They don't think about how they feel about their sexual desires, behaviors, or interests when they're not turned on. Now, when we are turned on, um, our... uh, Sexual disgust and our disgust reactions go down. Um, our our friend and colleague uh, Diana Fleischman has remarkable research on this, showing the relationship between disgust and sexual arousal. When we are turned on, we are less disgusted by things that we find disgusting. When we are not turned on, so being turned on changes the way we think. I want people to think about their sexuality when they're not turned on. And I want them to think about how it makes them feel about themselves. But then I also want them to ask the question, where did I get that? Is that right? Do I believe that? Many of us were raised with racist and sexist values, homophobic values as children. But many of us now reject those values. We we don't believe in racism or homophobia or sexism. So, So our values and our attitudes can and do change. If you were taught that, you know, masturbating made you less of a man, I want you to ask where you got that idea. And I want you to also think about why did the people who told you that think that? What were they wanting? Now, we, <laughs> I, I hate to say this because, because it sounds ridiculous, but in fact, the Nazis in, 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 told Hitler youth that they shouldn't masturbate and that wanting to masturbate made them less of a man, man, because it was a way to create insecurity that they could then capitalize on and use to manipulate the young men churches i mean the christian church has has gotten thousands of years of control over people by creating sexual insecurity and by framing masturbation um as as unhealthy there's a remarkable researcher in, in israel named yane Vifradi, and he's he's got this incredible paper um called oh god i can't stop thinking about it and he actually showed that the more religious a person was, the more they tried not to think about masturbation. And of course, as you and I have said multiple times today, the more you try not to think about something, the more you think about it. And the more distressed and anxious and ashamed they became about it. So if somebody's telling you these things, why? Um, you know, Kellogg's cornflakes was invented as a food to, as a bland food that wouldn't trigger physical hedonic pleasure and lead to people wanting to masturbate and have more sex. Because again, there's this, there's this idea that masturbation somehow depletes you. Um, Samuel Tissot was a Swiss physician in the 1600s who first argued in European literature that, um, masturbation depletes men of some, uh, essential kind of element. Turns out not to be true. Um, Turns out, you know the, the 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 stuff that comes out of your penis when you have an orgasm. It's not your brains. It's not. Um, it's not energy. Um, and masturbation appears to be a very very healthy behavior that has been so- socially stigmatized.
0: David Lay, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with the stuff that you do, where should they go?
1: uh you know you can find me on twitter um at dr david lay on instagram david lay phd and i've got a website david com. uh it is important to know though that lay is spelled l-e-y not l-a-y sounds like getting laid
0: david i appreciate you thank you
1: hey thank you chris enjoy the show